0: And welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Dr. Stephen Baim is director of AJC's Contemporary Jewish Life Department. He just returned from a critical fact-finding mission to Israel and joins us now to share what he learned. Steve, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Now, you've been to Israel dozens of times in your life, I'm sure, sometimes for work, sometimes for pleasure. This time, you were on a particular mission. What was it that brought you and a small group of AJC leaders to Israel? About six months ago, uh, uh, the AJC Executive Committee determined that
1: Israel-Diaspora Relations will be the main challenge of the Contemporary Jewish Life Department, our flagship program, really for about the next three to five years minimum. Uh, So we established a task force of AJC leaders to identify what would be the specifics of a program that would build bridges, enhance relations between Israel and American Jewry. Obviously, the sense is, is that the chasm is growing wider as we speak, And if we don't take initiatives to try to bridge the chasm, we'll be talking about the world's two largest Jewish communities who are really at odds with one another or at best indifferent to one another. So the task force was designed to come up with practical recommendations of what AJC can and should do. We went really on a listening tour to hear what Israelis expected of us with a mind saying, what would you recommend
0: that AJC consider doing? And so what sense did you get in terms of, you know, you mentioned what should AJC consider doing? That is kind of a, a solutions-oriented mindset. But you also have to have a sense of of what the challenges are. What are the main challenges, Steve, in, in Israel-diaspora relations? Uh, the hardest thing I think, Sefi, for American
1: Jews to get used to is that Israel today is very much a center-right society. Uh, there is obviously a left, exists in northern Tel Aviv, maybe a few other places, But uh, the chasm really is one of Israeli society moving towards the right politically, to a lesser extent religiously, although that's part of it as well. American Jewry is primarily, especially in its non-Orthodox dimension, which is the overwhelming majority of the community, we basically have bought into the liberal consensus. So essentially, there's a political divide here that is of enormous consequence. Parallel to that political divide is a cultural divide over language, religion, uh, even our own cult forms of cultural expression. What speaks to Israelis doesn't speak to American Jews and vice versa.
0: This is interesting, right? Because American Jews are, as you said, a largely left-leaning group and Israeli Jews are increasingly right-leaning or, or at the very least center right-leaning group. Both might cite Jewish values in terms of how they ended up the way that they are. What do you think about that? Like, How is it that kind of... Two similar sociological kind of toolkits have led to two pretty radically different outcomes in perspective. Look, the, uh, the liberal value that speaks to American
1: Jews in one form or another is a universalist value, that what we're about is tikkun olam, saving the world. But in a broader sense, we feel fundamentally optimistic about where society is going and where the position of Jews in society are. As a result, our basic instinct here in the States is not the survivalist instinct. Our basic instinct is the universalist instinct. Coupled with that, obviously, is the reality of American Jewish assimilation. In other words, the more American we are, the less Jewish we are, the less we're likely to think in terms of particularistic Jewish imperatives. The Israelis see themselves as living under a value system of survivalism. They're under daily threat, even existential threat, if you bring in the, uh, the question of Iranian nuclear bomb. So Israelis look at American Jews and say, your liberal values are nice, but uh, frankly, we don't have the luxury for them. Our key imperative is that of maintaining our security. Perhaps the best example I can give you, Sefi, is uh, the symbolism of President Donald Trump. Uh, American Jews, again, with the exception of orthodoxy, largely have rejected Trump. Uh, I think he got maybe 25%, maybe 30% of the Jewish vote. I don't think he'll do any better uh, in 2020. Among Israelis, his popularity rating uh, is close to 80%. So they look at us and say, Trump has been the most pro-Israel president ever. And here you guys don't seem to have much relationship with him. If anything, you have a
0: relationship that is borderline contempt. It is interesting, just to stay on this for one moment more, it is interesting that In the one place in the world where Jews are a majority, i.e. Israel, they have this kind of circle the wagons mentality. Now, I, I understand why that is, right? It's because just beyond those borders is a more threatening neighborhood. But you would think that if there was any place where Jews would be able to kind of set aside any sense of being a minority, like needing to kind of look out for for number one, it would be Israel. It would be the place where Jews are a majority. But in fact, the place where that actually happens more than anywhere else is America, where we make up just 2% of the population. It's an interesting irony, Sefi, but uh, I think the real turning
1: point is 2000 with the collapse of Oslo. Mm. Uh, During the Oslo years, Israel very much had a sense of optimism. Peace would not be immediate, but we'd get there over a relatively brief period of time or even an extended period of time, but we'd get there. Uh, Today, no one thinks peace is on the horizon. Uh, If anything, they feel Islamic terrorism has been on the rise. Rejectionism of Israel has been on the rise, especially in groups like Hamas and Hezbollah. Um, In that light, their approach to it, you say, is that of uh, a majority acting like a minority. Um, I think one has to realize that the collapse of Oslo disappointed so many people. Uh, What the Barack government did at the time was put forth the most far-reaching peace proposal for a two-state solution and even a compromise over Jerusalem. The answer to that was no. Further efforts by Sharon and by Omert for even more liberal proposals. Uh, disengagement by Sharon in the Gaza Strip and uh, an Olmert plan that was even more extensive in terms of the concessions on the West Bank. Yet again, the answer was negative. So Israelis look at that and they say the optimism that we had during the Oslo years has been disproven by history. And in that respect, no one's talking about a two-state solution. The gap here with American Jewry is fundamental. For American Jews, a two-state solution is the moral linchpin are the linchpin of Israel's moral claim, of Israel's position in the international arena, that Israel is willing to entertain a two-state solution. Uh, reality
0: is, as, as we speak, the two-state solution is becoming ever more elusive if it has not yet disappeared. What are some of the specific policy differences that we occasionally run into between Israeli Jews and American Jews? You know, I, I know that, and, and longtime listeners to AJC Passport will note, that you've spent a lot of time thinking about religious pluralism. Is that still kind of a focus of this enterprise? Uh, Certainly, as far as the uh, agency task force is concerned,
1: uh, there is no way that we're going to retreat on that agenda item. It speaks to American Jewry. In other words, American Jews, particularly in the reform and conservative camps, feel delegitimated uh, by the Israeli government over issues like the Kotel, over issues like conversion. When you speak to Israelis about it, they have several different responses, though, that I think are very important for us to at least understand. Uh, Number one is that, uh, contrary to popular opinion, Israel is not becoming more religious. Take a walk on Friday night in the streets of Jerusalem. When I was first there, I think it's probably my my 50th or 60th trip, but when I was first there, Jerusalem on Friday night was quite literally closed down. Um, Now you take a walk, the theaters are open, the restaurants are open. Um, in that respect, Israel is not becoming more religious. If anything, in the, the center of Israeli orthodoxy, um, namely Jerusalem, uh, you're finding uh, greater availability of non-kosher food, greater availability of Sabbath entertainments or Friday night entertainments. So one answer is they're saying that um, you're casting us as a religiously backward country. Uh, reality is the progress that's been made on the so-called pluralism front – in recent decades has been quite significant. Certainly, the number of conservative reform synagogues has grown. Number two, the focal point of American Jewish anger is the chief rabbinate, uh, with its monopoly over issues of personal status, marriage, conversion, burial, and divorce. The Israelis argue chief rabbinate's irrelevant to our daily concerns. We interact with it when we have to and we get through it. You guys have made it into a, a more existential issue that it needs to be. Most important. And this year, again, I think the amount of confusion among American Jewry is quite significant. Uh, Most important is that um, we have stereotypes of Israel becoming a more ultra-Orthodox society. The common phrase often used is that of Haredization. In other words, that the Haredi community is taking over. There's a lot of diversity within the Haredi community. Uh, On the one hand, there's greater openness because their people want to have a better standard of living for themselves. They don't want to live in perpetual poverty. Number two, they don't want a backlash coming from secular Israeli society. As a result, they're not pushing for more extreme religious legislation. If anything, the fundamental threat is less Haredi society at this point than what might be called ultranationalism, which um, it, it doesn't overlap with Haredi society per se. It overlaps with religious Zionism in its more extreme incarnations. Um, There, people are saying that's the real threat to Israel's future. Will we be a liberal national society or will we be an ultra-nationalist society? And frankly, the the ultra-nationalist groupings contain within them some real fascist elements, as we saw right here in terms of HAC with our debate uh, six months ago. Uh, over the um, – should we issue a statement over the possibility of the Khanna Party or Khanist Party
0: uh, entering into a future coalition agreement? That debate is alive and well today. I guess it's really the intersection of Haredi and, and nationalism, right? There's this community that's referred to as Khardal, Haredi, yeah, the, Lumi, exactly, Haredi the, the nationalism. Exactly. The term
1: is being used frequently. The symbolism of it is interesting that on the West Bank – in other words, among West Bank religious Zionist nationalist settlers – You find young men, boys in particular, with their side curls. Now, what's amusing and amazing about this is that the side curls were always the symbol of Haredi society. I.e. non-Zionist. Uh, that's right. Now you have the religious Zionists using the side curls. Huh. Obviously, people have a right to dress as they wish, but symbolically speaking, it's what you call chardalism, meaning some synthesis between Haredi society
0: and religious Zionist society, or national religious society. Just for the edification of our listeners, people might like to know that the word kardal literally translates to mustard, uh, which has nothing to do, of course, right. with, uh, with, with any of this. Um, I guess there is a question to be asked. You know, you, you said that Israelis would say... Say, you know, come on, what are you American Jews, you know, going on about with this, you know, concern about hardization, like, I might turn around and say, well, why doesn't it bother them, right? The country is still largely secular. You said that it's a myth to say that the country is, um, or at least, you know, overly simplistic to say that the country is becoming more religious. So why don't more secular Israelis care about this whole group that has absented itself from the workforce about certain public spaces, you know, having kind of religious rules around them? Shouldn't more Israelis care about this for their own sake? Well, that is the Lieberman phenomenon, Sefi. Lieberman is the head of the Israel
1: Beitenu Party, originally the party of Russian immigrants. translates as uh, Israel, our home, and it was meant really to represent the interests of Russian immigrants. Many, perhaps as many as 300,000, have a problem in terms of personal status, uh, namely that their status under Jewish law is questionable. They may be children, say, of a Jewish father and a non-Jewish mother. Their spouses may not be Jewish. Um, the, the best solution, obviously, would be conversion. The chief rabbi makes conversion next to impossible. Um, so in that respect, uh, Lieberman and his group uh, and people he represents are concerned about a growing Haredi minority that is trying to impose legislation. Reality is that um, while they're, they're a strong grouping and they certainly resent very heavily the intrusion of the religious parties into politics, they've never captured much beyond the Russian Jewish sector which means, in effect, that other Israelis, say, from from secular Israeli society, they don't like the Haredim. They're not particularly enamored with it. But they see, number one, there have been gains, namely that there is greater pluralism, so to speak, in the American sense of the word, of greater openness. Number two, they're really interested in recruiting Haredim into the universities, into the army. In other words, they're interested in integration. Their perspective, if I were to sum up in one simple sentence, is that with all the American Jewish clamor over the absence of religious pluralism, our existential challenge is integrating this large and growing Haredi population into the body politic of Israel. A confrontation with them is not going to do the job. Opening things up and bringing them into society, that's
0: how they see the wave of the future. For my last question, I want to change perspective a little bit and ask, you know, what would you say to those American Jews, particularly young American Jews? I think a, a growing subset of my age cohort who would say that, sure, it's, you know, Annoying that when they go to the Kotel, they can't have the same experience that they have in their, you know, conservative or reform synagogue in the States or or their independent, you know, prayer group or whatever. Um, And they might say, you know. Sure, it's inconvenient that they can't go on public transportation in Jerusalem on Shabbat. Or, you know, it's rude that even though they consider themselves Jewish from birth, the Israeli government doesn't consider them Jewish because X, Y, and Z in their personal history, Um, that that bothers them. But that the real source of the divide that they feel between themselves and Israel is actually geopolitical, is actually the occupation and Israel's ongoing conflict with Palestinians rather than anything kind of religious. Sefi, I think I'd I'd be
1: forced to say three different things. Um, Number one is that the political divide is real and any attempt to cover it up is engaging in apologetics. Um, we can't really control it. I don't like it either. As mentioned before, the uh, the growth of Qahannist elements, we find that abhorrent, and we've said so in the past. Yet it doesn't mean it's not there. Uh, even uh, uh, claims that uh, uh, Israel will extend its sovereignty over West Bank Jewish settlements, um, that fundamentally makes a two-state solution impossible. Uh, if that happens, again, the political divide will be seriously aggravated. And any attempt to suggest it's not all that compelling Frankly, I think it's pure apologetics. That's the first thing I would say. Secondly, I would say is that um, – and this is the the sort of thing I I know you've been working with with the Leaders for Tomorrow program is that um, young people – I mean they're a little bit younger than, than your cohort. But young people in general born, say, after 1967, they've known the reality of occupation. What I think oftentimes I feel they forget about is what might be called the true miracle of Israel. I don't mean miracle in a supernatural sense. I do mean the return of the Jews to sovereignty and statehood after 2,000 years of statelessness is one of the greatest success stories of Jewish history. It certainly is the success story of modern Jewish history. That needs to be celebrated. In other words, our narrative should not be about I can't go to the Kotel or uh, my Jewishness is not recognized. Those are problems, but the larger narrative... Is that of the miracle of creating a Jewish state. The third thing I would say is uh, really to go back uh, internally and and talk about ourselves, and that is one critical reason for the chasm is the reality of assimilation in American Jewish life. The more distant you are from Jewish matters, the more distant you're going to be from Israel. So in that respect, blaming Israel for the chasm is a one-sided indictment the real charge needs to be two-sided, that Israel has done some things that American Jews have enormous problems with. Again, I wouldn't apologize for that. I wouldn't try to suggest that's not real. What I would also say, though, is that American Jews have drifted away because the power of assimilation has taken a significant toll on Jewish identification here in the United States.
0: Well, Steve, there are a few people who have the kind of expertise that you do about American Judaism and Israel-Diaspora relations. So thank you so much for joining us today to share a bit of that expertise with us. Great interview, Sefi. Thanks. It's time for our special Israeli elections segment. Periodically, between now and the upcoming general elections on September 17th, we'll be bringing you an exclusive update on the race to determine who will be the next occupant of the prime minister's residence on Balfour Street in Jerusalem. This is The Battle for Balfour. If you're looking for a basic primer on how Israel conducts elections, please check out the January 3rd episode of AJC Passport featuring Lahav Harkov of the Jerusalem Post. Joining us today on the Battle for Balfour is Benji Rogers, AJC Associate Director of Policy and Middle East Initiatives. Benji, thank you so much for joining us. Steffi, great to be here. Israeli politics are known for this kind of Shuffling of parties that takes place in the run up to each election. So, you know, over the past few weeks, there have been splits and mergers and new parties and things like that. What I want to hear from you now, Benji, is what has changed since the April election in terms of the landscape of parties? Let's go sector by sector here. We're going to start with the left wing, then we'll go to the right wing, then we'll go to the religious parties, and then to the Arab parties. So, starting with the left wing, what has changed in the political landscape?
2: Sure. So I think the first thing to keep in mind is that August 1st, which was just a, a week ago, was the cutoff date for all parties within Israel to merge together, which is why in the last couple of weeks we've seen so much movement around. Um, everybody was trying to get in. Everybody was trying to make their, their agreements before that August 1st deadline, which is why I would say we've seen the most activities so far in this second election. Um, As far as to what's changed and looking at the left, I would say big picture, not much has changed, but when you get into the specifics, there's definitely been the emergence of new parties, um, new alliances being formed. So looking at the left, you still have the blue and white party as the center left party that's still united. um, And that's still the front runner in the left camp. Um, Polls are always hard to judge, but they're slated to get around 30 seats in, in the next election. Um, There were a lot of people who thought that the um, blue and white party may not uh, maintain its cohesiveness after the April elections. But as we see now, at least as of now, on August 8th, they are still together. Um, To the left of them, we've actually seen a few changes. Um, The one change is with the Labour Party. They elected a new chairman. It's now an individual named Amir Peretz, who is a Labour veteran. Um, And one of the first things that Amir Peretz did was he merged with uh, a party called the Gesher Party, which was a single-person party run by a woman named Orly Levy. So she was part of – used to be part of – Israel Beitenu, is a bit more, I would say, center-right than than a lot of people in the labor, and they formed a party together. Uh, The other thing that we saw was that we had – We have something created called the Democratic Union. So Ahud Barak, uh, who was the prime minister uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, put together a new party known as the Democratic Union. And he combined with uh, the Meretz Party, the leader of the Meretz Party. And there was also a few defectors from the Labour Party that are part of his party. A side note that's interesting about this party is Barak was really the, I would say, the force behind this party. Yet he, through his choice, placed himself on the 10 spot, uh, meaning that the Democratic Union would need to get 10 seats in order for Barack to, uh, to to, to be in the Knesset. So an interesting move. I think that, you know, if you ask people, why did he do this? I think he'd say, look, this isn't about me. This is for the betterment of Israel.
0: So uh, tell us about who else is in that Democratic Union Party. So Ehud Barak is the founder, but he included another entire party, the Meretz Party, and a pretty famous lawmaker who came out of the Labor Party, right?
2: Correct. Correct. So Nitzan Horowitz, uh, who is the new leader of the Meretz Party, is actually the number one on the seat of the Democratic Union. Um, party, I guess technically the party chairman of this new Democratic Union party. Um, the other person who's on that list is Stav Shafir, who comes from the labor. Um, she was a very prominent figure within labor. She was actually running against Amir Peretz to be the chairwoman of labor. And she was very opposed to the union that Amir Peretz made with Orly Levy and used that for saying, look, I'm going to break away and join the uh, this new party with with Ehud Barak and with Nitzan Horowitz. The other person who's in that party that people may have heard of as well is Ir Golan, who was the deputy chief of staff just a few months ago. Um, So there are some very interesting people in this new party.
0: So that, roughly speaking, is the state of things on the left. We have kind of going from left to right or left to center, maybe. We have the Democratic uh, Union, this new party led by Barak and Stav Shafir and Nitzan Horowitz. We have the Labor Party, uh, which is maybe reinventing itself more as like a social welfare kind of party that is maybe shying away from some of the traditional left-right issues in Israel, i.e. the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, And then we have blue and white. This kind of for people like you and me, Benji, who grew up on Power Rangers, uh, this this Megazord party um, that puts together a bunch of individual large personalities. And for the goal of taking down the person who they see as the big bad, which maybe is a good segue into talking about the right.
2: Sure. So on the right, um, we still have the the Liquid party. Um, this is the most powerful party, the most prominent party uh, run by Prime Minister Netanyahu. He is continuing to push for uh, as many votes as possible, as one would assume. He, however, has lost a bit of power, I would say, since his last election. Uh, Right now, again, polls are always hard to predict how accurate they are, but he's polling also around 30 votes, um, similar to what blue and white is doing. But the reason he's lost some votes, it, it wasn't to the left. He lost some votes to the right. And so what's interesting is if you look at what happened, what's going on to the party's right of Likud. So you've had the creation or I should say maybe the recreation of the United Right Party. Um, so the United Right Party is a few right wing parties that have been linked together, parties that are to the right of Likud. Um, so Ayala Sheked, who was hand in hand with Naftali Bennett in the Jewish Home Party and then the New Right Party, um, is actually now slated as the head of this further new party known as the United Right Party. Um, that's also with a few other people. Naftali Bennett is actually part of that party as well. Um, who we know as the former head of the Jewish home party is also part of that. And then a few others, um, as well. So it's a, I liked your imagery of a a Megazord. Um, this is also a compilation of a lot of prominent right wing figures into one party.
0: What might be the bigger news actually, when it comes to the United right is who is not in it. Can you tell us about that? That's correct. So
2: one of the biggest criticisms, I would say, that was leveled in the last election was the uh, was about including the Otsma party in um, in the far-right complimation of, of parties. Um, the Otsma party is a party that uh, has ties to radical parties, Jewish terrorist parties um, in the past. Um, and this time they did not make the um, larger right-wing base, which I think— for AJC's perspective is is very welcome news
0: running from right to center, like we did uh, before, we have this united right party. That's the furthest right of the parties that can viably be expected to make it into the Knesset, which is plenty far right. I think that one of the accomplishments of the news around Otsma Yehudit and Zahut and Noam, this kind of trifecta of extremely far right parties, is that it makes the union of right-wing parties seem uh, a little less right-wing, but they are traditionally the extreme far-right of Israeli politics. Then in the yeah. center-right, we have Likud, but I leapfrogged over someone. Um, can you tell us about Yisrael Beitenu?
2: Yeah, so this is actually, if you're asking what is the most interesting thing about this election cycle, is really what's coming out from uh, Israel Beitenu, and this is a Victor Lieberman's party. So if everybody remembers correctly, if Victor Lieberman was the individual who was, however you want to put it, credited, blamed cursed, celebrated as the individual who stopped Netanyahu from being able to form a right-wing coalition in the April election. What Lieberman had said, and what he's pushing for very, I would say, powerfully now, is this idea of having a united front, um, a grand coalition, if you will, of mainstream Israeli parties. So he's talking about the his desire to be able to form a coalition with Likud, Blue and White, and, of course, Israel Beiteinu at, at the helm. Um, his message, you know, if you look at the polling results now, people are more interested in him this election than they were last election. He's in a lot of polls. He's slated to get around 10 votes. Uh, that's a 100 percent increase from last time when he received five votes. Um he will likely be a kingmaker in the next election. And what I mean by that is if you look at the um, possibilities of coalition formation right now, it is still very difficult for Prime Minister Netanyahu to form a right-wing coalition without the support of a Victor Lieberman. Um, so the question is, what what will that mean? Um, will Netanyahu form a a unity coalition with Israel Beiteinu and Blue and White. The issue with that is Blue and White has said they will not sit in a coalition with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. Also, you saw an op-ed this past week from Prime Minister Netanyahu saying that his goal is not to form a unity coalition, but to form a right-wing party. And when, as far as the as to condemn Lieberman and saying, look, if you don't vote for Likud, if you don't vote for me, you're essentially voting for the left because um, Lieberman is going to try to undermine the process and force us to form a coalition with blue and white. Um, It's very interesting messaging. It's very dynamic. Um, All of this is, is uncertain because we still have a lot of time before uh, September 17th when the elections are coming up. But this is the most uh, interesting political dynamic right now, is what is going to happen between a Victor Lieberman and Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu.
0: I want to come back in a moment or two to that term you raised, unity government, and, and explore that a little bit more. Before we do, we should finish our wrap around here. Let's talk now about the religious parties, the ultra-Orthodox parties. Have yeah. there been any changes in that part of the landscape?
2: So not too many changes there. They're slated to get similar amount of votes as they got last time. Um, you still have Shas, which is the Mizrahi Party, and United Torah Judaism, which is the Ashkenaz Party. In recent news, um, Litzman, who is the head of the United Torah Judaism Party, police just recommended that he be in- indicted on um, two different counts. One is an unfortunate account of trying to impede the extradition process of a uh, individual who was uh, accused of sexually uh, harassing um, a few women. Australia is trying to, to bring the individual back, um, and Litzman was accused of, of trying to stop that process. Um, however, because um, the way the religious parties work is that it's very membership-based, if you believe in the Haredi Ashkenaz view of this, the Mizrahi view, religious view of this, um, you tend to not really change your political affiliation. So it's unlikely that the indictment will impact the amount of seats that uh, United Torah Judaism gets in the next
0: election. And what about in the Arab sector? Have there been any changes there? So, yes. Yeah, so, this is
2: also quite interesting. The Arab, in the last election, the Arab sector was split, uh, and now they have formed together a joint list, uh, similar to what they did. Not in the previous um, elections, but the elections before that one in 2015. So they're now running on one ticket. And something that was interesting about them is that Ayman Odeh, who is the head of the party, gave a comment this week, last week, saying that he may be willing to sit in a government with with blue and white. Whether that helps blue and Whites, I don't know. Um, (laughs) But it would mark one of the first times that there's this willingness, there's this desire from the Arab parties to be part of a, uh, an Israeli coalition. Um, so, so that I think is, is significant.
0: Um, Benji, before we close, I want to learn a little bit more from you about what you said before about a unity government. So first of all, you know, <laughs> here in America, the idea of the two kind of main opponent parties cooperating to form a government together and make sure everything runs smoothly is... <laughs> Shall we say foreign? Um, But actually, in parliamentary democracies, this happens from time to time. Can you tell us, you know, what is a unity government?
2: Yeah, so the way that the Israeli political system works is you have to form a coalition. And more times than not, the way that they form a coalition is exactly the way we just spoke about it. Members of the right-wing parties banding together to create a coalition. Members of left-wing parties banding together to create a coalition. But sometimes in Israel, throughout Israel's history, particularly during times of war, uh, particular uncertainty, there be there's something called a unity government, which brings together traditionally the left and the right parties, the main parties in the past. You know, it was Likud and it was Labor, brings them together to bring more stability, more rep- I would say more representative um, uh, policies to the Israeli people. So what, is, what does that mean, really? It means a lot of people in Israel are frustrated with fringe parties that have a lot of power, um, but do not necessarily speak for what the entirety of the country wants. So we're talking, you know, center left and center right. I mean, it's the centrist approach. Um, But more often than not, it's not these two centrist parties that band together. It's the center right with the far right or the center left with the far left. So there's this idea that has a lot of prominence, particularly in the last elections, that how nice would it be if we had a unity government? And this is something that, that Lieberman in particular has been vocal about. Although, it's hard to imagine politically how that would happen under the current circumstances right now. I do want to make one, since we're, we're getting into the weeds here, the latest rumors right now or fears, however you want to say them, is if Israel Beitenu and the Blue and White Party can get the rest of Likud without Nanyahu to be part of the unity government. Um, You may have also seen this this week that all the Likud members signed a unity pledge saying that there are only being a government with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. This is uh, you can get more and more into the weeds, but there's all these kind of uh, maneuvers going on. People are trying to undercut each other, um, trying to get ahead in, in the political fight.
0: And I actually saw recent polling that indicates that actually a majority of Israelis would be in favor of a unity government, although the individual who fancies himself and his party a catalyst to create that unity government, that is to say, uh, Avigdor Lieberman uh, and, and Yisrael Beiteinu, um, that actually the majority of Israelis would prefer for him to not be a part of that unity government. So yeah. um, this is a rapidly changing landscape, although even though the particulars of the parties have now solidified. And that was an excellent wraparound from you, Benji, on left and right and religious and Arab. Um, There will doubtless be many, many more changing headlines between now and uh, about five weeks from now uh, when Israelis head to the polls. Benji, thank you for sharing your expertise with us today.
2: Yes, Sefi. Thank you so much.
0: Now it's time for our closing segment. Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Netflix. Good for the Jews? Or to be more specific, a certain Netflix show called Stiesel. Shtisel is an Israeli TV show available on Netflix that follows the lives of the large Haredi Shtisel family as they go about their lives in the ultra-Orthodox neighborhood of Jerusalem called Geula. The experience depicted on the show is very specific. With perishingly few exceptions, it explores the lives of Haredi Jews who live in Jerusalem and practice their ultra-Orthodoxy in accordance with Lithuanian tradition. They speak quite a bit of Yiddish, especially in the older generations. And yet, something about the show is incredibly universal. So much so that one of the stars of the show recently quoted a fan from abroad who told him, quote, I'm a Norwegian Christian, and watching shtisel makes me long for my childhood in Geula." Apparently, a sizable number of Haredim who generally don't own computers or TVs have also found their way to watching the show. And why shouldn't Haredi Jews and Christians in Norway and Americans all enjoy the show? At its core, Sh*tisel is a beautiful, at times painful, story of family and belonging and making your way in the world. All the more so for the American Jews who have fallen in love with the show, binging both seasons available on Netflix and eagerly awaiting the third. For them, Shtisel also represents a fairly uncomplicated picture of Israel, devoid of political inflection or conflict. Life in Shtisel is filled with love and loss and learning and kugel. In recent years, a slew of Israeli programming has made its way to our shores, a process accelerated by Netflix's voracious appetite for content. If we American Jews can connect to our Israeli brothers and sisters through binging Shtisel and Fauda and When Heroes Fly and Beauty and the Baker and Srugim and Arab Labor and Hostages and Shabab Nikim, well, that would be good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org Passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at Passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukang Doe. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.